This is CNN Breaking News. You're watching CNN. I'm Julia Chasley in New York with you for the next hour. It is day 20 of the war in Ukraine and a 35-hour curfew has been ordered in the capital starting tonight as Russian forces advance on Kyiv and civilians come under fire. Two people lost their lives as flames engulfed this apartment block shelled by Russian forces. Yet, amid the scenes of devastation, we are also hearing stories of astonishing bravery too. Nearly 50 people were saved by emergency services. In the aftermath, survivors are left to sift through the damage and what remains of their home. At this hour, Russian forces encircling at least four major cities, including Kharkiv, Ukraine's second largest. Meanwhile, in the south, destruction in the port city of Mariupol. Drone images show plumes of thick black smoke rising from damaged buildings, as you can see there. Ukrainian officials say more than 2,500 people there have died. The Russian forces aren't the only ones approaching Kyiv today, too. In a show of solidarity and at great personal risk, the prime ministers of Poland, Slovenia and the Czech Republic are aboard a train journeying to meet President Zelensky in the capital. The Ukrainian president made a direct appeal earlier to Russian soldiers in his country, surrender and survive. I know that you want to survive. We hear your conversations in the intercepts. We hear what you really think about this senseless war, about this disgrace and about your state, your conversations with each other, your calls home to your family. We hear it all. We draw conclusions. We know who you are. Therefore, I offer you a choice. On behalf of the Ukrainian people, I give you a chance a chance to survive. If you surrender to our forces, we will treat you the way people are supposed to be treated, as people, decently. In a way you are not treated in your own army, and in a way your army does not treat ours. Choose. And other conversations. Talks set to resume between Russia and Ukrainian negotiators after a pause during Monday's negotiations. Now, the Russian assaults have been brutal, but as we've been showing you, the Ukrainians are putting up a fierce fight. They're using what defences they have in anticipation of Russian advances. As Ivan Watson explained to my colleague John Berman earlier. This is a village outside of the city of Venezia. And we're getting a sense during our visit here of how the local population has been mobilized by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So all of this has been erected in the last two weeks, and it's all homemade, just kind of concrete blocks, spare tires, sandbags, you know, just kind of metal rebar that's been kind of welded together, netting here that locals have sewed here. And we're going to spin around and you can get a sense of what the guys who are volunteering here, they have their Molotov cocktails uh, at the ready. And this is entirely a voluntary effort. I've been speaking with some of the guards here. One of them is a fireman. One of them is a retired police officer. Another one is an electrician. All an example of how the local population has mobilized here. A a, a local official I talked to, he estimates that about 20% of a population of more than 12,000 people in these villages have gone into the Ukrainian army 
have gone into the Ukrainian territorial defense. He estimates maybe 10% have fled. And the rest, he says, are very active in the volunteer effort, in the war effort. That means uh, people who help out with humanitarian assistance that's being brought in from Europe and that is collected here and that is then loaded into other trucks and shipped back out uh, to frontline cities where people are in such tremendous need right now. You know, Vladimir Putin, one of his objectives by invading Ukraine, he said, was to demilitarize this country. We are seeing the exact opposite result, John, which is uh, an entire population that is being mobilized in the defense of their homeland. I want to bring in a local official here that I've been talking to, Vladislav Kriveshka, thank you, who's just 23 years old. He's the district head of three villages. You have not seen ground fighting here yet. Are you ready if the Russian military reaches this region? Uh, yeah, you know, uh, we are ready. And um, it is all this situation is a quintessential ascension of human unity, of unity in Ukraine, in Ukrainian population. And here we have 20% of uh, mobilized people uh, to the army, to the uh, territorial defense. defense and uh, local defense. What kind of message would you like to send the rest of the world? We were seeing the aid that was sent in, humanitarian assistance, food, clothes. What kind of message would you like to send from your region? Uh, you know, the highest part of my message uh, would be, uh, please close the sky. This is uh, the most important thing that we need, because here uh, on the ground we could fly, but on the sky we need to close the sky. All right. Thank you. Again, a call that we've heard from the president of Ukraine for a no-fly zone, which uh, President Biden, of course, has ruled out, arguing that that would be the beginning, the beginning of World War III. Now, this is just one village, John. Uh, I drove in from Moldova into Ukraine yesterday, and everywhere on the side of the main road, you saw similar fortifications, similar defenses, uh, a sign that communities uh, are, are ready to defend themselves from this invasion. And Scott McLean is in the city of Lviv in the west of the country with us for the latest. Scott, good to have you with us. I want to talk to you about what we're seeing more towards the east in the capital city uh, of Kiev. Not only are we seeing a 35-hour lockdown, but into the mix, the Czech, Polish and Slovenian prime ministers heading for talks with President Zelensky. We're talking about three leaders of NATO nations heading into a war zone. It is difficult to understate the significance of what they're doing because as of late, Julia, Kyiv is not a very safe place. Just this morning we've seen uh, four different residential structures hit by shelling there. A 16-story apartment building that burst into flames, a 10-story apartment building that also had fire afterwards, a, a, a private home and then another uh, apartment complex as well. And so uh, there have been fatalities, there have been people injured, there have been people uh, having to be rescued by the, the fire crews there. And so Kiev obviously is going under this curfew and you can understand why these authorities have put it in place. It'll begin tonight, it'll go stretch all the way into Thursday morning. And in the past, of course, we've seen European officials uh, come to Poland to express their support for Ukraine and, and the refugee crisis there. We've seen them come all the way to the border in some cases. Uh, it would be one thing if they were coming here to Lviv, where, as you can see, it's still 
relatively safe here. There hasn't been any bombing or shelling in this city yet. It is a whole different story, the fact that they are going there to Kyiv to meet with President Zelensky directly in what will surely be an underground bunker there. They say they are trying to send a message in strong support of Ukraine, and they also plan to announce a package of support uh, for the Ukrainian people. It comes on the same day as European finance ministers are also unveiling a package of new sanctions that they say is historic, Julia. Yeah, it is historic. And it's also a message to the Russians, I think, and the Russian government. Try bombing when there's NATO leaders in town. It'll be interesting to see how long they stay. Um, I want to ask you about the situation in Mariupol as well. We know people there stuck in desperate conditions after the days of, of attacks and bombings that we've seen. The Russian Ministry of Defence suggested that car convoys with humanitarian aid had been sent now into the city, that corridors had opened up. Scott, what proof do we have of any of this? Can you, can you give us the latest from there too? We have very little. There's been this sort of back and forth between the Ukrainians and the Russians on what has been provided, what hasn't been provided. So what I can tell you for certain is that according to Ukrainian officials yesterday, about 160 private vehicles, possibly more, were able to get out of an unofficial corridor back in further into Ukraine yesterday. They were not allowing buses on that corridor, according to Ukrainian officials. There were a, a con buses in a Ukrainian convoy, along with trucks packed with aid that were headed into the city. They, that, that convoy was expected to arrive on Sunday. It didn't arrive then. It didn't arrive yesterday either. So as far as we know, that convoy of aid is still not in the city. At the same time, as you mentioned, Julia, you also have the Russians who are saying we are opening up our own humanitarian corridors so that people can go to shelters. Not clear which side of the border those shelters may be on, but it's clear that obviously the Russians are in control of a very large swath of territory there. Uh, in fact, they claim to control a land bridge between the Donbas region and eastern Ukraine and Crimea there. So uh, it may well be Russian-controlled territory, but it is not clear what kind of aid has gotten into the city, if any, from the Russian side. If it is, it will be very warmly welcomed, you have to imagine, because people are getting desperate. And so they likely don't have the option to say no to aid just because it is coming from Russia. We have uh, people, according to local officials, dismantling heating systems to try to get drinking water, melting snow. Uh, many of the stores, most of the stores, have already been looted long ago for people to try to find whatever food and water they possibly can. And remember also, there's no power, there's no heat. And so you have people through all of this sheltering in freezing cold basements. The estimates are that from local officials that there are some 350,000 people still trapped in this city, a city that uh, in many places has been leveled. Scott McLean, thank you for your reporting. Okay, let's move on now to an incredibly brave moment captured live on Russian state TV. Channel One editor Marina of Sayanikov walked into the studio where the anchor was broadcasting live, holding a sign saying, no war, stop the war, do not believe propaganda, they tell you lies here. Her lawyer provided a video later that he said was taped before her protest. What is happening now in Ukraine is a crime, and Russia is the aggressor country, and the responsibility for this aggression lies on the conscience of only one person. This man is Vladimir Putin. My father is Ukrainian, my mother is Russian, and they have never been enemies. 
and this necklace on my neck is a symbol of the fact that Russia must immediately stop this fratricidal war, so our fraternal nations will still be able to reconcile. Go to the rallies, and do not be afraid. They cannot arrest us all. Halloy confirmed to CNN today that he's still unable to find her. The Kremlin calling the protest hooliganism. Nick Robertson joins us now. Nick, I think everyone who saw this yesterday, including me, held their breaths at the level of bravery. It's sort of reminiscent of opposition leader Alexei Navalny-style strength. What do you make of this? And, and what do you think Russians that saw this will make of it? It's a very powerful message coming through a very powerful medium. And it t- obviously took a lot of courage to do this. And the fact that she recorded a message uh, essentially laying out why she had taken such bold action before she did, that she recorded the message prior to it, really indicated that she knew that she was getting into a lot of trouble. Um, The fact her lawyer doesn't know where she is physically, I think, speaks to the level of concern that that, that people would have about her um, and about what is happening to her at the moment. The investigative committee in Russia, which is a body that oversees uh, the work of journalists and journalism, says that she is essentially being charged with one of the new laws that came into effect just uh, within the past couple of weeks, that, that is spreading false information about the Russian army. It's not quite clear what the maximum sentence for that could be uh, if she is just charged quite simply with that. Uh, the statute says that it could be three years in jail. But if she is charged with using essentially being in an official position in her capacity as working at a state broadcaster, then the sentence would go up to 10 years for that. And Dmitry Peskov, uh, President Putin's spokesman, said that those who work at uh, such live broadcast state institutions have a special responsibility and perhaps is giving an an indication there that they will absolutely throw the book of new laws at her. Uh, potentially, therefore, that 10-year sentence. It's impossible to know. Her message was a rallying call for further protests. And, of course, the government there has been trying to stamp out the protest. Protesters arrested just this past weekend, about uh, 15,000 protesters almost arrested since the beginning of Russia's war in Ukraine. Um, An incredibly brave act, as you say. Uh, Ukrainian father, Russian mother, they've never been enemies I think everybody needs to watch the message that, as you said, she seemed to pre-record because she knew what was going to happen or she had a sense of what was going to happen. And she apologised for what happened in Crimea in 2014. And to the point you made as well, which I think is very important, she said, look, they can't transplant everybody. Everybody has to stand up here and and recognise and acknowledge what's taking place. Is that the danger, Nick, that she's held up now as an example? She's made an example of in the same way Alexei Navalny was. It's an interesting conundrum for the government, um, because if they hold her up, then, then they have to make an issue out of what she said. Um, and that they have to therefore state that somebody was talking about no an end to the war. Typically, what happens in Russia, they'll try to cast uh, aspersions on her you know, mental state and mental well-being and write it off in some way like that uh, by diminishing um, her call. So I don't think that they will play it up, but I do expect that they will absolutely uh, try to give her the maximum penalty. That would be absolutely fitting with the way that Russia is behaving to anyone who speaks out about this protest. They put these laws in place in literally a matter of a, a day, passing them 
in the lower house of parliament, the upper house of parliament, President Putin signing them later in the day. And this legislation is what President Putin wants to absolutely control the narrative in Russia. There will be little, um, little quarter, if you will, given to her, little sympathy from the uh, state authorities. They will, I think, try to try to do a character assassination. That's often what they do do. A brave, brave woman, woman amid terrible suffering. Nick, great to have you with us. Nick Robertson, thank you. The US sharing information with its NATO allies, suggesting China has expressed, quote, openness to providing Russia with military and financial assistance. That's according to at least two sources. Beijing dismissing the claim as U.S. disinformation. David Culvert joins us now. David, you and I were talking about this yesterday. And, you know, I look to what we're seeing in financial markets. Again, we're seeing a shakedown in China. Fears, I think, and a de facto self-sanctioning. At risk is China of being self-sanctioned if they put an outreach here to, to Russia and try and support them in some way. And you combine that with Omicron, growth challenges, the crackdown on the real estate sector, these are foundational shakes that I can see for China at this moment. How do they handle this? Right. Yeah, I think you're right on with that. And it's almost this balance between pragmatism, the reality of trying to, to salvage and protect the economy here, Julia, and that of ideological allegiance, if you will, to their neighbor in the north, to Russia. And, and perhaps this goes all the way to the top. And that's where we look at President Xi as to what direction he's going to go with all of this. We know that he considers Putin, obviously, to be his best friend. Uh, but at, at what cost? Does that mean even to sacrifice the economy here? It's not likely, because as soon as you mess with prosperity, you start to mess with social stability. And so uh, it's not clear how far he's going to go with it. But you and I have talked about over the past several months that President Xi has made moves here that have rocked markets, that have erased more than a trillion dollars in some industries uh, and doesn't seem to be impacted by it. He, he seems to move forward and think it's best for the, the population here and the Chinese people. Now, Chinese officials, they, they did meet with U.S. officials at that high-level meeting Monday in Rome, and they say that they're not going to stand for any of the attempts to smear China over its position amidst Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And, and that message came from the man who is the top foreign affairs official uh, here in China. That's Yang Jiexu. He met Monday in Rome with U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. And we're told this was an intense seven-hour a discussion. And it comes as CNN's learned that U.S. cables suggest China has expressed some openness to providing Russia with requested military and financial assistance. Now, China's dismissed this. They say it's disinformation coming from the U.S. They say the U.S. has been peddling lies. And Yang told Sullivan that China always calls for respecting the sovereignty and territorial integrity of all countries and went on to say that China is going to continue to promote peace talks and has provided emergency humanitarian aid to Ukraine. But China has also backed the Kremlin, as you and I have talked about, Julia, in claiming that Russia has legitimate security concerns that, that need to be addressed here. And in that high level meeting, Yang also stated that it is important to, as, as he worded it, straighten out the historical context of the Ukraine issue, get to the bottom of the problem's origin and respond to these legitimate concerns of all parties. Now, it also was a moment for Chinese officials to bring up Taiwan, the self-governing democracy that obviously China considers to be part of its sovereignty, and they believe that the U.S. is threatening that. 
They also brought up in that meeting Xinjiang, Hong Kong, Tibet. It, it seems to be a, a moment where China was bringing forth all their concerns to dump on that table with uh, the U.S. and say, look, these are internal matters. They're, they're domestic affairs. Stay out. Yeah, a very fine line to walk at this moment. And perhaps the biggest opportunity for China here is to play mediator. We shall see. David, we'll reconvene. Thank you for that. David Culver there. We're back after this. Stay with us. Welcome back. And another extraordinary day unfolding in the commodities markets. Huge moves and extreme volatility. Oil currently down by over 6%. As you can see there, both Brent and U.S. crude plunging below $100 a barrel. Briefly, in the case of Brent, oil losing more than a quarter of its value since hitting 14-year highs less than two weeks ago. The energy move, I think a combination of factors. For one thing, the dissipating expectations of sanctions on Russian energy from the likes of the EU. British Prime Minister too, Boris Johnson, hosting a meeting of Northern European leaders on the Ukraine crisis as we speak. He's urging everyone to end their dependence on Russian oil. Putin over the last uh, years has been like a a pusher, uh, feeding an addiction uh, in uh, Western countries to his hydrocarbons, uh, to his oil and gas. Uh, We need to to get ourselves off uh, that addiction. So why didn't they react sooner? For the time being, the UK and the EU seemingly stuck using it, which means volatility. Plus, if you add in the impact of existing sanctions, also the risk of secondary sanctions against China, as we were just discussing, or while Beijing faces ongoing COVID lockdowns, that spells trouble for the global growth outlook. And you can also add to that the prospect that Moscow might technically default on its sovereign debt as soon as tomorrow. What does that mean? Well, European stock markets are weaker, but off their worst levels. Wall Street is, uh, where are we now? Well, as you can see, we're plummeting once again. The Nasdaq off by some 2% pre-market. The S&P 500 off by three quarters of a percent too. And of course, don't forget, the Fed is ready and set to announce its first interest rate hike in more than three years tomorrow. Okay, a rebrand in support of Ukraine as people started dumping vodka after Russian invaded Ukraine. Stolly Group, which owns Stolichnaya Vodka, changed the drink's name to just Stolly. While founded in Russia, the company moved production to Latvia back in 2000. Its founder, Yuri Scheffler, a local critic of Vladimir Putin, left Russia in 2002. Stolly quickly condemned Russia's attack, saying, quote, it is a long history of fighting the Russian regime. Now, even though Stolly has distanced itself from Russia and has employees in Ukraine, it's still experiencing boycotts. Stolly Group CEO Damien McKinney joins us now. Damien, this is not just about making a good business decision. This was also about your employees, I believe, too, saying, look, we need to do something here and acknowledge that we're no longer a Russian product. Julia, thank you. Uh, You're absolutely right. It was an organic decision made by the the team itself. Um, I I mean, I've said this several times. This is deeply personal. Uh, I came off a call this morning with 32 members of my team who are directly affected, uh, either because they're in Ukraine or the countries around. They've got family in Ukraine um, and literally all all extremes to the, we've got a a wife and a child, we managed to move out before the invasion. Her husband is actually fighting in the moment. And as she said, it's a roller coaster. So it's against that backdrop 
that we decided that one, we needed to ensure that everybody understood factually that we actually are a Latvian company uh, and that the exactly as you define, the founder has been fighting against this evil regime for 20 years. And the team just felt, honestly, it's time to drop the Chennai piece. We are Stolly. This is what we stand for. We actually stand in this particular case for Ukraine and freedom and peace. But actually, we stand as a company saying that good must overcome evil. And Stolly, we believe, is nice and neat, simple and clear in terms of sending that message. I mean, Damien, there's a lot I can talk about there, but I just want to ask you, you've got one employee you mentioned that's actually remained in Ukraine and is now fighting. What about the other employees? And and, and are you doing anything to ensure the one that's remained to fight his safety? I know it's difficult. It's, it's a look, it's a, ve- it's a very difficult one. Um, we're doing it in multiple ways. I, I was actually a Royal Marine Commando in my previous life. I did 18 years. Um, and the comment I made to the team this morning is that if you're fun- fighting on the front line, uh, it's those what I call three o'clock in the morning moments when you're tired, you're cold, you're, you're wet, you're, you're very lonely, you're, you're, you're afraid. You know, all those the, the sort of all the, the demons come out. It's incredibly lo- lonely. And so one of the things is I write, I've been writing to him, others I've said reach out and, and he appreciates the fact that there are people out there. And I share the news, I share this news, that, that there are people absolutely in his and their corner. And, he, and, and that I think is positive. I think there's a second, which is we've been trying to help. For instance, one of my employees, her mother uh, was in a final stage of chemotherapy in the hospital in Kiev. We've managed finally through quite a convoluted process, but to get her to, to Luxembourg. Um, so where we can, we're trying to repatriate. But there's also partners. It's not just our direct employees, but we've got a lot of partners, whether distributors or suppliers on the ground. Uh, and one of the things we're now trying to do is is help them as they're moving out of the country, they've got out of the country, to move to other countries. Because as you know, the refugee machine, and we're helping with World Central Kitchen, is, is, is pretty, once it gets going, it's pretty impressive. The, the problem is that, that after a couple of weeks, you almost become old news because it's the fresh refugees coming in. And that's, again, a really lonely, uncertain period for individuals. And so what we're trying to do is now help move them. So in, in our case, into either Latvia or one of the other countries and actually providing pastoral care. You know, I was talking to my HR leader this morning saying, you know, it's things like you move into a strange city, language, everything's strange. And then you say, by the way, here's some money. But they don't know which baker shop to go to. They don't know which grocer. They, they don't know who to talk to. So it's also about providing the right pastoral care. So we're really trying to, to provide a whole package as best we can. Because, again, by helping the people who have left the country, that actually full circle helps the individuals staying and fighting that at least we're looking after their, 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 their broader family as much as we can. So they can get on and so- do what they do. Yeah, I mean, anyone that's listening to you, one of the obvious questions is, look, you're, you're OK being Russian when it matters for the business, but now you're making the separation when it's when it's uncomfortable. And I, I watched the video on social media as well of people pouring some of your vodka down the drain and saying that we're not buying Russian products. And this is part of what you're fighting here is this perception that that you remain a, a Russian company, I think. But Damon, anyone listening to you hearing about how much you care, writing letters to, to your employees as well? Um, I think I don't even need to ask ask that question. Um, but Julia, can, 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 I, can I give you a view on this one? Which yeah, is, please do. And it, it's, I have Russians in the company. Um, 
I have Africans. I have, I, I, right. you know, I, I feel like I've got a representation of, 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 of gender and race and so forth. But, you know, I, I was involved in, in a number of operations, but I was involved in one where, you know, I was working in Kurdistan and there was a general called General Ali. He and I had fought together. Um, and there was a moment where an Iraqi general came um, to have peace talks. And as we walked up the hill, I was 30 years old. He was 30, he was 31, I think. Um, and he held a hand of this Iraqi general and he walked ahead of me and I was shocked. I was absolutely shocked. I thought, hold on, his, I mean, his family had suffered through genocide himself, as you know, the, the story. And, and afterwards, when it was all over, I said to him, why did you do that? And he said, because he's just a soldier. It's not him. It's the regime that's done all of this. And I think that's, that was a big lesson for me as a, as a 30 year old to learn. I thought I'd learned a lot having joined up at 18. But I think as we look at this, you know, I have a lot of Russian friends watching the lady last night on the news, jumping forward yeah. and saying, you know, this is, should, you know, this is not about people in the broadest sense. This is about some evil individuals. And we as leaders have to stand up to those individuals and say, this is wrong, but recognize all the good that is coming from the broader people. And I've tried to, man to maintain that as we've gone through this, because it's important. You know, I was going to ask you, is you're diversifying your wheat buying for, for ethanol away from Russia to Slovakia, I believe. And I was going to ask you about the wheat farmers in Russia and the people that are suffering as a consequence of decisions made by the government. But the example that you just gave me answered the question in a far more important way. Um, I'm out of time. Damon, please keep in touch. We'll continue to talk to you. And thank you for joining us. And thank you for your service, no. sir, too. Damien McKinney, CEO of Stolly Group there. Stay with CNN. More to come. Welcome back. Let me remind you of the latest developments from Ukraine. A 35-hour curfew has been ordered in the capital, Kyiv, starting tonight as Russian forces slowly approach the city. Ahead of the curfew, indiscriminate shelling of residential showers in Kyiv. Also developing this hour, the White House is considering a trip to Europe for President Biden. And NATO leaders discussing a possible meeting in Brussels next week, too. And in an extraordinary move, the prime ministers of Poland, the Czech Republic and Slovenia are aboard a train to Kyiv to meet with President Zelensky. Earlier, the president spoke to European leaders about security and military support. We, we all are the targets of Russia and everything will go against Europe if Ukraine won't stand. So we'd like to ask you to help yourself by helping us. Now, as Russian troops inch closer to the Ukrainian capital, a story of incredible courage. A group of people are risking their lives to protect surrogate babies kept in a basement deep beneath Kyiv. Sam Kiley had the chance to meet them. This is precious cargo. Not cash in transit, but week-old baby Lawrence in transit to a new life. Born to a surrogate mother under bombardment in Kyiv. He has raced through the Ukrainian capital to a nursery in the southwest of the city. It's perilously close to Russian troops and easily within range of their artillery. This is a gauntlet his new parents will have to run when, or if, they come here to collect him. For now, he'll be among 20 other surrogate babies destined, it's hoped, for new lives in Argentina, China, Spain, Italy, Canada, Austria and the US. Parting from the child she carried as a surrogate, Victoria is inevitably tearful. Her pain intensified 
by uncertainty. It is even harder that he is in a place where there's shelling. And when will his parents get to take him away because of it? It's really hard. This missile struck about 500 yards from the nursery while we were there. There are constant explosions we can even hear in the basement and the Russian military is reportedly consolidating and planning to push in further into the city from the east. So the future of these children is even more in doubt. How long will it be before it's impossible, completely impossible, for their new parents to come and rescue them? The nannies here cannot join the exodus of civilians from Kyiv. These babies may be tiny, but they're the heaviest of responsibilities. Antonina's husband and daughter have already travelled to safety 130 miles south. These babies can't be abandoned. They're defenceless. They also need care. And we really hope that the parents will come and pick them up soon. An Argentine couple collected their child the day before. But a combination of the pandemic and now war has meant that some have been stuck here for months. It all depends on the strength of the parents' desire. I met with parents who came to Kiev to pick up their baby. They had tears in their eyes. They had waited 20 years for their baby. And there are such couples who are afraid because there is a war going on here. These infants are oblivious to the doubts over their future and the dangers that they've already survived. There's abundant hope that it stays that way. Sam Kiley, CNN Kiev. Sam Kylie making babies smile there. Coming up, a historic refugee crisis, a historic global response. We'll speak to an aid organization on the ground in Poland giving crucial aid to Ukrainians in need. That's next. Welcome back. The United Nations calls it the fastest growing refugee crisis since World War II. Almost three million Ukrainians have been forced to flee their homeland during Russia's invasion. Most of them have crossed the border into Poland, but Hungary, Slovakia and Romania are seeing large inflows of refugees too. Citizens of countries that border Ukraine are eager to lend a helping hand. Miguel Marquez reports from Romania. They arrive by the hundreds. Normal Ukrainian citizens one day, refugees the next. It's too stressful, yes, because um, we have no idea what to do, <laughs> where to go, and when we will be able to return to our homes. Pavlin is from Kharkiv, Ukraine's second biggest city, which has been devastated by Russian artillery and rockets. When I was packing my clothes, she says, I thought it would all be over in three days. For many, just arriving on Romanian soil, emotional. One woman cries as a volunteer hands her a bottle of water. All the Romanian people are mobilized and are helped these people. Romanians stepping up, trying to make Ukrainians feel a little bit at home. Denis Stamatescu closed his restaurant in Costanza. He now serves meals free to refugees. We closed the restaurant and we are coming here to help these people. Chicken pork. Chicken pork. And for all those getting out, a few going back in. Alexander Pahomenka is returning to Mykolaiv. Russians have hammered the city. And you are willing to die for Ukraine? 
We all die, he says, then adds, I'm afraid to die, but I'm not a coward. Tatiana Bukietava from Odessa, along with her daughter Miroslava, their dog, and two cats. She says they left because of what they heard was happening in places already controlled by the Russians. I've heard about the violence, she says, and killings of peaceful people without any reason. She added, I had to leave. I was too stressed about it happening to me and my daughter. Miguel Marquez, CNN, Isachia, Romania. More than half of Ukrainian refugees, almost two million people, have been forced to flee to Poland. So many people in need that officials in Poland's largest cities are running out of resources. Aid organizations like the International Rescue Committee are on the ground doing what they can, providing essentials like blankets, clothing and food and more. Bob Kitchen joins us now. He's the Vice President of Emergencies and Humanitarian Action at the International Rescue Committee. The organization is ramping up operations in Poland and is now providing help inside Ukraine too. Bob, great to have you with us. I think most people, including Ukrainians, we keep hearing it on a day daily basis, simply caught off guard by the timing, the scale, the speed at which we're seeing and the number of refugees created. Your experience of what we're seeing? It's the world's fastest refugee crisis we've seen in decades. Uh, And I think it's going to be the largest over time with close to three million Ukrainians have now fled their country. And remember, there's also another two million who've been forced to flee their homes and are yet still displaced within the country, trying to figure out how to get to the Western border to flee to safety. And then the other thing to keep in mind is there's millions more stuck in cities that are now surrounded by the Russian military. They're unable to flee. Yeah, I mean, that's assuming as well, if we see the violence shifting further and further west, to your point, it puts more pressure on the bordering nations as well. I know you're giving out essential items, basics, blankets, warm clothes, groceries. But what caught my attention, Bob, was what I've seen in terms of what else you provide. And that's cash, literally cash. Yeah, we're scaling up in many different ways. The most urgent needs, as you said, right now are for the very many hundreds of thousands we're seeing crossing every few days into Poland is giving them warm clothes, giving them warm food. Um, giving them information about where they are and where they can go and what they're going to expect. But then uh, in the next days and weeks, we're now doing assessments in the large Polish cities, getting ready to start distributing cash, using the fantastic infrastructure that Poland has to give people ATM cards, to, to give them choice about what, how to fulfill their needs. So they'll have the money they can buy from local markets, helping Polish people as well. I mean, that's phenomenal. How quickly can can that be organized on this kind of scale? Because to your point as well, it also helps the local economies, too, if people are, are spending money there as they try and rebuild their lives. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're seeing great welcome from Poland and Romania and even countries further afield with Ukrainians arriving into Germany and Italy. The whole of Europe has really moved to help this population as they flee such terrible violence. We can scale up quickly. We can turn on programs to distribute cash very quickly, especially in such a developed country like Poland. One thing I've seen you as an organisation do as well is, is pressure the UK government to do more to speed up and streamline the process of accepting refugees. What needs to change? And I think you've probably already given me the answer. Who's setting the example here for how it should be done? 
Yeah, I'm, I mean, as a Brit, I'm somewhat disappointed. We're we're chasing the pack of European countries rather than leading them, which is a shame. Um, we need to open our borders and let in um, Ukrainians who are just fleeing terrible violence. We should be welcoming instead of putting up barriers. Um, Germany is doing fantastic work, as are many, most of the European countries, extending legal temporary status so people can uh, find accommodation and start working even. It's really, really very good. Yeah, message sent. What about psychological support? and counselling. It goes back to where we began the conversation. For most people, this is the suddenness of this has huge psychological implications, particularly for children, I think, too. How is that taken care of? Is it taken care of? Well, it's not just the suddenness, it's also the the massive violence, the yeah. ongoing bombardment of civilian infrastructure, the cities that people are fleeing from. It's terrifying. So as we are receiving families coming across the border, as we start the conversation about where they are and what services they can get access to, we're also starting the process of extending counselling to them, trying to follow them to where they're going so we can pick up and, and help them. In places like Germany, we've done this for several years now with other refugee populations. We're also working with German schools to help them extend education opportunities, but done so in trauma-informed ways so they can support the kids as they come into wider classrooms, start to recover from that trauma. Yeah, it's funny. The conversation we were just having previously on the show uh, was someone talking about loneliness, how lonely these moments are, whether it's a a Ukrainian soldier, Russian soldiers or or someone who's been displaced in such a way. Um, Bob, for people watching, what can they do to help? I always feel like in these moments, do you want to do something to help? Yeah, I mean, there's there's lots of ways people can help by giving funds, sharing their resources to help the people who are most in need. You can go to rescue.org for the International Rescue Committee as we're scaling up. Helping our work would be greatly appreciated. Bob, we appreciate your time and what you're doing to help people in need. Bob Kitchen, the Vice President of Emergencies and Humanitarian Action at the International Rescue Committee. Still to come. The UK and the European Union stepping up sanctions once again, while another super yacht linked to a Russian oligarch has been seized in Spain. The details next. The UK and European Union back with more sanctions against Russia, this time banning exports of luxury goods, placing import tariffs on steel and vodka, and on the EU's list, over 600 Russian individuals. As the ruble crumbles, sanctions are continuing to put pressure on the Russian economy and those closest to Putin. Anna Stewart joins me now with more details. Anna, any names of recognition on this latest list? Well, the latest years from the EU has no names listed at all. But from the UK, hard to sift through it. But I've seen a couple pop out. Mikhail Friedman, for instance, also Dmitry Medvedev. They have had weeks since, of course, the Russian invasion to shift uh, and shed assets. Months, if you consider how long troops have been on the Ukrainian border. And years, actually, since the annexation of Crimea. So how effective those sanctions will be in terms of Western assets, we really don't know. Um, All sorts, as you say, though, announced over the last 24 hours 
both from the UK but also from the EU, much actually really in line with what we saw from the US and Canada last week, really targeting wealthy Russian consumers and various businesses and sectors within Russia. I thought one of the most interesting ones actually from the EU was banning the imports of Russian steel. That currently counts for around 15 to 20 percent of all of the EU's imported steel. So that could certainly have some impact on industry. And of course, we've already seen a lot of price movement when it comes to metals. They're, of course, not touching Russian energy and also not the metals that they're probably more reliant on, like copper, nickel, palladium, aluminium and so on. Both the UK and the EU withdrawing most favoured nation status from Russia. Again, this follows on from the US and Canada, meaning they can increase tariffs as high as they like, frankly, on Russian trade. And it really just removes the benefit of Russia being a member of the WTO, the World Trade Organization, which, as we know, is incredibly hard to eject someone from. Yeah, your point about steel, I think, is vitally important, given the tremors that we're seeing in the commodities markets already and the inflationary pressure. Um, I know you've also been on Yacht Watch now for, for several weeks. We've got a new addition, Valerie. Pretty name, pretty price tag, too. What more do we know about that? I think we've got a picture somewhere as well. I'm sure we have some beautiful pictures we can show our viewers. Another gigantic super yacht that has been seized by Spanish authorities. There it is. Uh, the Port of Barcelona now has that one. There have been a few super yacht seized, not as many as you might imagine. Um, and that is because so many of them have been on the move uh, for the last few weeks. And we've been watching actually Roman Abramovich's uh, two super yachts, Solaris and Eclipse. Um, they started moving I think a couple of days before sanctions were imposed on him here in the UK. Uh, and they both are now very much in international waters. They look like they could be heading to Turkey. Who knows? But this is the issue, really. When you're looking at seizing big assets like this, unfortunately, they do move. And they have been now for weeks. Yeah, we have one minute left, Anna. What happens to these assets? Where do they go? Who holds them? <laughs> what happens? And can Julia Chatterley board one of them? Unfortunately not. What we do know is that Russian oligarchs cannot obviously use them. They cannot sell them. But what's so interesting and really, really unprecedented, I think, is obviously the state doesn't own them. They could try and uh, take ownership of a super yacht if they could prove that the money used to buy it was connected to crime. That will be incredibly hard to do. In fact, it's nearly impossible to even be able to track who owns a super yacht. And there's been plenty of complaints from some of the oligarchs and uh, people that manage these super yachts. It's not also like planes where you can just dump them in the desert and they can look after themselves. These are bigger than a football pitch. They need huge berths. And even without the fuel required and all the staff that are normally used on them, and that normally costs millions of dollars of upkeep a year, they're still going to cost tens or even hundreds of thousands of dollars just for the general upkeep and maintenance, Julia. The chairman of Fortescue's words in my ears, blood money, buying these kind of assets now owned by Russians. Anna Stewart. Thank you for that. And that's it for the show. Stay with CNN. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next. Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. 
Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.